0: Welcome back to the program. For many people in urban America, restaurants represent a place where they live their lives. Spending time with friends, memorable meals, socializing, and simply being a third place. Not home, not office, but an urban extension of our lives. For some, those third places become like songs or great books. Simply mention them, and they become triggers of thought that short-circuit time and make yesterday's events today's reality. That's what my guest Coleman Andrews has done in his memoir, My Usual Table. It not only tells of Andrews' life, but captures the zeitgeist of an era, particularly in Los Angeles, in the 70s and 80s. Coleman Andrews co-founded Savoir Magazine and was its editor-in-chief from 2002 to 2006. He was a restaurant columnist for Gourmet and is currently the editorial director of The Daily Meal. He's a native of Los Angeles. He holds degrees in history and philosophy from UCLA. He's a recipient of eight James Beard Awards. And it is my pleasure to welcome Coleman Andrews to the program today to talk about My Usual Table, A Life in Restaurants. Coleman Andrews, thanks so much for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Great to have you here. Talk a little bit about the idea of restaurants as being, for so many, an extension of our lives, places where we go, where we hang out, that really become very much a part of of who we are and how we experience our life in many places. Right, right.
1: Well, I mean, as as you say, they've they've been called uh, this idea of having a, a place that's not your home and not your place of work, but it's it's a it's a third place it's a a place uh there was a, a book about this uh called i think the great good place uh for some people it's a bar for some people it's a cafe i guess if you're in paris you'd have your neighborhood cafe um for, for me, it was, it was really always restaurants. As I, as, I, as I say in the book, I grew up in restaurants. and I, I don't mean by that that my parents were in the restaurant business. My uh, father was a screenwriter for uh, Hollywood Studios, and my mother was uh, what they used to call an ingenue, uh, kind of window dressing in movies. <laughs> uh, I doubt that she ever had a speaking part. But, uh, uh, and th- they were the perfect restaurant goers uh, because my father made pretty good money, and my mother could not. Cook. So they went out to restaurants all the time. And they started taking me with them uh, when I was, I think, literally a babe in arms. Uh, and the, the place we went the most often was Chase's, the famous old Hollywood uh, hangout in, in uh, West Hollywood on Beverly Boulevard, uh, now long gone. But uh, I, I got from them uh, the, because they were so important, restaurants were important to them. And I kind of inherited that and, and just got to feel familiar with the whole idea of restaurants and comfortable when I walked into certain places, not every restaurant, but certain places just felt right, you know?
0: It's interesting that if you talk to people that have grown up with similar kinds of experiences, there, there's one, or one of two ways that they deal with it. Either they rebel against it in many ways, and I've mm-hmm. talked to many people over the years whose parents... Took them to restaurants all the time and they grew up wanting to have, wanting to cook and have home cooked meals and, and be more hearth and home. And there are those like yourself that just extend that into their own lives and really take restaurants to heart.
1: Right. That's. Uh, I just. Uh, I didn't see anything not to like about restaurants. I mean, you, you know, okay. you'd, you'd go in and you'd sit down, and basically people brought you things, and <laughs> they were usually you know, good things to eat and drink, and they, you know, they were nice to you. And I mean, this isn't always the case. Uh, obviously, we all know we've had bad restaurant experiences, but the the ones in, in my childhood uh, were. Mostly, uh, as, I, as far as I remember, really, really nice and, and good. And I think part of this is that, you know, there's been a one of the many major shifts in uh, the restaurant scene in America over the last 20, 30, 40 years has been the uh, the rise of the chef's restaurant as opposed to the restaurateur's restaurant. I guarantee you my parents who went to Chasen's probably once a week for 20, 30 years had no idea who the chef was. And they wouldn't have cared. The chef was the hired help. He was in the back. He did what the restaurateur wanted him to do, you know, and obviously there's disadvantages to that and it's unfair to chefs and, and uh, the chef's lot has gotten a lot better. But the advantage is that the people in the, in the front really wanted to welcome you and make you feel comfortable. And there was a consistency to restaurants because when the chef changed, the menu probably stayed the same. Uh, And today, when a new chef comes in, um, and as you know, chefs tend to change very frequently in some places, uh, he doesn't want to cook the last chef's food, so he uh, brings his own food in. So the restaurant itself changes character much more often than these places used to.
0: And talk about how, if at all, it has changed the nature of restaurants, because the restaurateur, as opposed to the chef, although it's true of some celebrity chefs today, the restaurateur of of that day was a kind of impresario in his or her own right, mostly his in those days.
1: Oh, absolutely, and yes, you're right, it was mostly him, but um, yes, uh, impresario is a great word. I mean, uh, it was really like uh, the the spirit of the restaurant, the uh, the name of the restaurant, the decor of the restaurant, even really the menu it came out of, of this guy's, uh, whoever he was, uh, out of his sensibility and his tastes and, uh, or often it was his and hers, uh, might, might be a couple that, uh, as in the case of Jason's that sort of uh, co-ran it, but, um, it, it was really not, uh, it, it wasn't about the chef, you, you know, I always say whenever I hear the, the words in a restaurant, the chef wanted you to dot, dot, dot you know, the chef wanted you to taste this, the chef wanted you to have this rather than what you ordered, the chef wanted you to do whatever, then, I mean, it's not necessarily going to be a bad experience, but it does tell me that it's the chef's restaurant, and, and it's not, uh, you know, the most important thing is for the chef to express him or herself and not for me to come in and, and just have a good time. And that's, that's something that really has changed.
0: Many of the restaurants that you write about, many of the tent poles of your story and and the story of My Usual Table are restaurants in Los Angeles. Talk a little bit about the restaurant scene in Los Angeles and and how it evolved during essentially this period that you write about.
1: Sure. Well, I mean, uh, it's uh, the Los Angeles restaurants figure so largely in the book because that's where I was born and brought up and, and, uh, Spent uh, most of my life there. I mean, I, I traveled. Uh, I started traveling when I was uh, in my late teens, early twenties, to other countries and so forth. But I didn't move away from Southern California. I now I live on the East Coast. I didn't move away from California until I was about fifty years old. So, so I had a lot of time there to uh, to really get to know the restaurants. And what I saw was um, the old style restaurants. Um, they a lot of them lasted through until the eighties or nineties, but they're mostly gone today, uh, but the restaurant scene in L.A. really uh, uh, got to be in the, in the 80s uh, through Wolfgang Puck and, and some of the other uh, really creative restaurateurs. It, it really became, I thought, uh, I, I would easily have defended it as the most exciting restaurant town in the country, and then I think it kind of went into a little bit of a slump, but I think it's sort of back now. I mean, I, it, there's such energy and such creativity and imagination in L.A. restaurants today. It has nothing to do with the kinds of places I grew up in, which were, if they weren't old guard like Chasen's, then they were novelty restaurants like Trader Vic's or, um, you know, Ersatz Mexican like El Coyote, which, which I loved. Uh, even though when I started going to Mexico, I realized that <laughs> it had very little to do with the way people ate there. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, the, there was always a, a variety. I think LA used to get a bad rap for restaurants, and I think... Uh, there were always some good restaurants there maybe not as many good ones as in New York or San Francisco but um there were good places to eat but then something happened and and uh it just it, the scene blossomed and i think you know california is great i mean, all over california because there's a there's this uh sort of endless availability of the best raw materials you can possibly imagine and uh everybody talks about the produce and the fruits and vegetables but also what's what we catch off the uh off the coastline, and, and, uh, I mean, there's great beef raised in California, and there's great, you know, there's all kinds of great stuff. And, um, so th- there's that, but also there's that, uh, you know, we, we Californians, uh, even though I'm, I'm, uh, in exile now on the <laughs> East Coast, you know, we, we just, we, we, we have this sort of freedom of attitude that, uh, we're not as bound by tradition and we're not as, uh, uh, we don't have to play by the rules quite as much. So uh, I think that engenders a lot of imagination and, and uh, lets people just do what they want to do. And, and that often turns out very well.
0: You talk about uh, this movement from restaurateurs to celebrity chefs. And you spend time in the book talking about Ma Maison and, and Wolfgang Puck becoming the right. celebrity chef there before he opened his own restaurant. That was really a, right. a transition point. Talk about that.
1: It really was, and, uh, you know, when people talk about and use the term celebrity chefs, there, there are a lot of different theories as to who was the first celebrity chef, and some people will say, you know, it was Escoffier or Caram or one of the French guys uh, 100 years ago or more. Um, but in, in the modern sense, I really think, not in the sense of being a chef's name that other people would recognize, but going beyond that, uh, where the chef's personality really became uh, such a key part, uh, a key selling point, I think you could make a case for Wolfgang having been the first celebrity chef. And, of course, this came out of the fact that he was uh, serving celebrities. And, and uh, I mean, Ma was, it was just uh, incredible when you'd walk in there. Uh, Friday lunch was the big celebrity day. But any day you walked in there, uh, you would see uh, 20 people that you recognized uh, that, that were big-name actors and actresses. And, uh, you know, Jack Lemmon was a regular and Orson Wells and I mean, it was just all kinds of people. And then the the rest of the people that you didn't recognize were the ones behind the scenes. <laughs> they were the big producers and directors and, and uh and uh agents and so forth. So uh it was a very high powered uh, uh situation. And Wolfgang uh has that kind of personality where he just sort of walked into it and and was not intimidated by it and you know, would joke around with the regulars and uh got to know the uh Uh, all of these people, which was tremendously important when he, obviously, when he started his own restaurant. But he always said, um, having worked at Maxime's in Paris for a while, he said that was the first time when he was a young chef that he realized, because that was a place where all of the important people in Paris went in in an earlier era, so that was the first time he realized the importance of having a a celebrated clientele, because he said it, it brought in the other people.
0: What impact did it have on restaurateurs, for example, in Ma Maison, the impact that Wolfgang Puck's celebrity had on Patrick Terai.
1: Right. Well, um, Patrick certainly was a strong personality and, uh, and a celebrity restaurateur himself, um, but he, he got eclipsed, frankly, right. and, and, you know, he went on after, uh, after he made the decision, well, he kept Ma Maison going after Wolfgang left and had several other good chefs there, but it never quite had the whole, uh, had, had that kind of thing that it used to have, that sort of magic it used to have. And and Patrick tried to do some other projects around L.A. and uh, didn't work out, and he's, uh, he's now living in Georgia. Uh, he has a little cafe there, and he publishes a, a regional magazine. And, you know, so he's kind of been eclipsed, whereas Wolfgang, every time you turn around, he has a new product and a new restaurant and uh, is doing something else. So... Uh, it was really like like two people sort of passing each other in different directions in a way uh because Patrick at one point was very well known in the Los Angeles restaurant right. community and uh, you know was seen as an arbiter of of taste and and you know who where you got seated and how quickly you got seated and all that and It was a, a kind of a throwback to the old fashioned idea of the the old metro Dotel or something but but Wolfgang really showed, I mean, the revolutionary thing about Spago, uh, and this was uh, a lot to do also with Barbara Lazaroff, his wife, Wolf's wife, uh, was the, the casual, comfortable atmosphere. And it, it showed that you could have serious food and you didn't have to dress up for it. Even at Chasen's, which you know, they didn't make you wear a necktie, but, you know, people went there in, in jackets and, you know, the women wore their good dresses and and Spago was a place you could go in jeans and still see all the same famous people and, and, uh, and eat really good food. And that, that really was a, a revolutionary idea back in 1983 when Spago opened. And uh, we, we forget now. <laughs> also, the idea that a chef, a serious chef, would make pizza or, or serve pasta if he wasn't Italian was, was unheard of.
0: What impact did it have on food in general, even the kind of food people had at home?
1: well i think it certainly um it had the the effect of democratizing the restaurant experience somewhat even though that may be, seem a strange word to use for a restaurant that was known for celebrity clientele and where it was hard to get a reservation if you weren't known but but the all the spin-offs of spago the endless endless uh people that were influenced by it, whether they worked there or not, uh, that opened places that were sort of Spago light, uh, over the years. And then, you know, many of them developed their own personalities and went far beyond that. And I think that really had the, um, the effect of telling people that you could, you could have good food in a casual atmosphere, that you could mix Asian and Italian and Provencal and American and, and who knows what else, uh, uh, on one menu and still have it make some kind of sense. And, uh, You know, it was really uh, very influential in that way. As far as home cooking, um, I don't know. I mean, I think um, some of the simplicity, the the glorious thing about the sort of California cuisine, quote unquote, uh, whether it came out of Chez Panisse or or, um, or Spago or or any of the other uh, very good places that were doing something in that genre, was that it really reminded us that in California we have all this great stuff that we could cook with, and we don't have to do a lot of really complicated things with it. You know, one of Spocklow's most famous dishes was the uh, was the Chino Farms uh, chopped vegetable salad, which was not, I mean it's something anybody could have made. He just needed to buy really good vegetables and not overcook them, and chop them up, and mix them together with a little dressing, and you you had this uh, this dish. And I I think people maybe picked up on that idea. And, and of course, he also uh, Wolfgang also came into people's homes in the in the uh, Through the agency of his frozen foods and his frozen pizza and all, you know, and he tells a story that the reason he got into the frozen pizza business was that Johnny Carson used to come in and have dinner on Sunday night, and then before he left, order uh, like ten pizzas to take home. And one day, Wolfgang said, "What? Why are you taking all these home? Didn't you get enough to eat today?" And and he'd say, "Well, I, I take them home and I freeze them. They reheat really well." And a light bulb went off in, in Wolfgang's head, and he said, oh, hmm, maybe I could make a business out of this. So that's why they have frozen pizzas now from, uh, from Wolfgang.
0: As restaurants became hot and popular for all these reasons we've been talking about, what impact did restaurant reviewers have on this restaurant scene?
1: Well, I think uh, that, of course, we're talking about an era before the Internet, before Yelp and, and um we really uh, restaurant critics still had uh, much more influence than they have today, and I think um, the early critics or the the critics of um, in California particularly, and then in other major cities, when this kind of American food revolution came about um, in the really in the eighties, uh, late seventies, uh, maybe beginning. Uh, I think had a lot to do with uh, with uh, celebrating what these chefs were doing and and uh, writing about the raw materials and really encouraging people to try these kinds of restaurants. I think it was it was very important. It's it, it's a different uh, situation today because people are you know we're all critics now. Everyone's a critic, and you know this actually started with the Zagat guides uh, even before the internet. But uh, the idea that uh, crowdsourced Reviews are more important or at least as, as important or as valid as critics' reviews uh, has sort of changed the way people uh, think about restaurants. And I don't know that today that it would be as easy for a new culinary movement to to spread uh, because it's, all, it's so fragmented. What people write about it, it's so fragmented.
0: The whole business is more fragmented. I mean, one of the things that seems... So nostalgic in some ways about some of the restaurants and the places that you write about is a certain innocence of the time.
1: Yes, um, we. I guess yeah. We we didn't know. Um, I, I almost want to. I have to be careful here because I have a <laughs> lot of friends who are chefs, but it's like we we didn't uh, we didn't think of chefs as being great artists, uh, rightly or wrongly. Um, we. Thought of restaurants, as I said earlier, as just being places to go and relax and be comfortable, and the shift of the spotlight onto the art that we were uh, we were witnessing. You know, we were we were privileged to enjoy the the art created by this this great artist. And and I you know I certainly believe there are chefs who are great artists and and who deserve that kind of reverence, but. Um, that's in a way, it's kind of beside the point in the restaurant experience, if you know what I mean.
0: As you sort of relive these memories, there's this interesting nexus between the people you were with, the place you were at, the food that you ate, and and they all kind of blend together in a certain way with respect to the memory of them.
1: Well, that was the idea of the book. When uh, when a when an editor asked if I'd be interested in writing a memoir, I said, "Well, yeah, yeah, maybe," but I didn't want to just do the well, I was born, and then I went here, and then I did this, and I went to school, and I got married. and I didn't want to do a, a, just like a simple chronological uh, memoir, so it, I started thinking about it, and it, it just dawned on me one day that one of the constants in my life had always been restaurants, and that when I sat down and started making a list of the places that were most important to me, it, it just worked out very nicely that they seemed to correspond pretty closely to different periods of my life. So that was the the idea of structuring the memoir that way so that each chapter is, a, is around a restaurant. And uh, it's not only about the restaurant, obviously, but it's about what was going on in my life away from restaurants, too. But uh, it seemed to work out pretty well that way.
0: Do you think that the same things, the same universals can be said about restaurants today, or is something else fundamentally changed that somebody living in L.A. or New York or anywhere else, for that matter, might be able to write about similar experiences 30 years from now?
1: Boy, I don't know. I think one thing that uh, has changed is that restaurants don't seem to have as long a lifespan. And I think that's intentional in some cases. Uh, I think people want to do a certain kind of restaurant for a few years until they get bored with it or until um, something else uh, occurs to them or better use for the um, for the space occurs to them, and they want to try a different concept, or they as I said, they lose a chef and they have to do something different because they have a new chef and so i mean that 's one issue is the longevity of restaurants, but the other issue i think is i i don 't know that people use restaurants in quite the same way anymore. Uh, I think uh, there may be an issue of of uh, simply uh, i don 't know how to how to put this but um, <laughs> you know, there, it seems like a lot of times you go to a restaurant today and they make it difficult for you in various ways. I mean, whether it's the reservation policy or the, or you're sitting in a place with, uh, on a bench with, uh, with no back or, you know, it's less comfortable and it's, it's more about, Hey, it's the buzz and it's the hip place to be and it's fun. And, you know, and the food's really outrageous and you've never had anything like this before. It's a, You know, and it's a different atmosphere. It's a a different intention, I guess, is what I want to say.
0: The restaurants, as you say, don't last as long, but they don't want you in there as long. They don't want you making it (laughs) your your third home, so to speak.
1: Exactly. Because, yeah, they they need to, well, they need to turn the tables and, you know, the business plans are are, uh, based on, you know, two and a half turns for dinner and two turns for lunch or whatever. Um, I don't know that that, I mean, I'm sure that existed in the old days, but. You know, people pretty much um, used to, I mean, my recollection of, of Chasen's is people would go and they'd. Uh, I mean, we'd come in at 7 in the evening or something and we didn't stay for three or four hours, but there was never any sense of people waiting in the wings for a table or, uh, you know, what, what do we do now and, and uh, you know, we have to get up now and, and so on. I, I mean, it, was, it seemed more relaxed. That was my perception anyway.
0: What seems to have taken its place today in many respects is the coffee shop. That's become the new right. place people hang out.
1: Yes, exactly. And I mean, uh, actually, that's interesting, the, the use of the term uh, coffee shop. We were just discussing that at, uh, at the Daily Meal on my website. And whether uh, in my youth, a coffee shop was a, uh, a place like Denny's or uh, a place where you went and you, know, you ate food on the East Coast would be called a diner. Right. Um, and I think today people say, well, you know, Starbucks is a coffee shop. Well, i mean it's a shop that sells coffee, so maybe it 's a coffee shop and so but I think the the idea i mean Starbucks is a great example of uh look at how people use starbucks uh, they uh, you see this everywhere people i mean a lot of people go in and grab a coffee and leave, but then a lot of people sit there and they they spend the morning there and they mm-hmm. you know they're, it's their office away from home or they come with their friends or they come you see uh you see moms with their, with their kids in strollers uh, gathering, meeting there, and spending two hours there and just relaxing. And, you know, so it's funny. It's, it really has. I, I didn't necessarily think of it that way before, but it, it really has taken on a little bit of that function, that, right. that third place function.
0: And I'm not sure that we haven't lost something in that, or maybe it's just a kind of false nostalgia we have.
1: Oh, I know. There's a, you always have to be careful about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Coleman Andrews, his book is My Usual Table, A Life in Restaurants. Coleman, I thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Well, thanks. It's been great to talk to you.
0: Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.